Hey, IBD family. This episode is about intimacy, so it is for mature audiences. If you are not a mature audience, and to me, that means over the age of 18, or intimacy is not a topic that you want to listen to, then I suggest that you skip this episode and wait for the next one. If you are interested in listening, I suggest that you grab a pair of headphones. With that out of the way, here we go. How, again, how can we in sips and gulps reconnect and rebuild pleasure in our lives, pleasure in our relationships, intimacy in our relationships? And then when you add the layer of of illness onto it and of IBD onto it, it's like our energy is all so limited. Welcome to episode 42 of About IBD and the first edition of About IBD After Dark. I'm Amber Tresca. I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis at age 16 and had two-step J-pouch surgery 10 years later. I'm the IBD expert at VeryWell.com and the person behind AboutIBD.com and the About IBD social media platforms. It's my mission to educate people living with IBD about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. My guest is Kate Scalisi. Kate is a sex educator who founded Passion by Kate. She also lives with Crohn's disease. Your first impression is that her work involves, well, sex, but it's actually so much more than that, as she will explain. Kate created two hashtags that she uses on her social media platforms, which intrigued me, and those are freedom and pleasure and practical pleasure. Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis put significant barriers in the way when it comes to intimacy. These diseases can separate us from feeling connected to ourselves, our friends, and our intimate partners which erodes our quality of life. Kate helps people reconnect with what's pleasurable in order to bring back their spark. Kate takes us through her Crohn's disease journey, why she became a sex educator, and what it's like to attend one-on-one counseling with her. I ask her to dispel a myth about sex and to tell me why the usual advice of just have more sex isn't always the answer to solving problems with intimacy. Kate. I know you get this question all the time because you are, let me get this right. What's your title? Mm -hmm. I am a sex educator. Why would you pursue a career in sex (laughs) education? Aside from the obvious. (laughs) Wait, what's the obvious? The obvious would be that it would be interesting Mm -hmm. and fun Mm -hmm. and something to talk about at parties. Mm -hmm. Um, But I imagine that it is challenging work yes so what would draw you to the profession so this was not the original plan by any means um although the original plan did still involve uh genitals which was my original plan was to become an ob-gyn and i started selling sex toys while i was in college and i was actually at a catholic college fun fact got into a little bit of trouble with that as you can imagine um but i started selling sex toys as a way to make some quick money to visit my partner who was who was living out of the country at the time and i really 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 wish i had better intentions going into it but it was like i need to make money i need to make money fast someone told me this will make me money so sure I'll do it and I remember at the very first party two things really stand out one was that I made back my investment plus made a profit in one night with a bunch of broke college students 
And two was that people had so many questions that I could not answer because the company that I was working with at the time, which is is no longer around, was just a direct sales company. They gave you a lot of training on the products and how to sell. And they gave you like one book of like, here's everything you need to know about sex. And like, hell no, there's so many questions. And people were so eager to tell me their stories. And I was like, oh, there's, there's something else here. And for me, so that was 2009. And for a solid two, three years after, the plan was still medical school. I applied, I got in, decided not to go in no small part because I, at that time in between college and going, um, I started working in healthcare and doing health psychology research with cancer patients. And what I really learned from that was just how awful healthcare providers have it. And I looked around and was like, this is just not the life I want for myself. And I also realized that there was so much I could offer people talking about sex because with these cancer patients and the research we were doing, we did ask one question about sex. I was real lucky. I had a super progressive, awesome uh, investigator that I was working with and people would just spill their their stories to me. And it would range from funny little things like, no one told me I'd lose the hair in my hoo-ha when I started chemo. <laughs> and like, why did no one tell me that? Like, I just, it's fine. I just would have liked to know to really deeply personal traumas that had never been addressed throughout the entirety of their care, related to their care, and just no one had addressed them. And so I started to realize, oh, there's something here. So I decided to go continue my plan. Of, my original plan was MD, MPH, Master's of Public Health. And I said, not doing the MD, not becoming a doctor, going to go for my master's in public health with a focus on sexual health education. And it's kind of where, kind of what brought me to this point today. And just really seeing that there's such a need for spaces to have these conversations because it's just so shamed and taboo in our society. I feel like this was a calling for you, almost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you found your calling. I just said yes to this real random, like we were at my friend's birthday party, the guys were around the campfire drinking beer and talking sports and the ladies were in the kitchen. I mean, like so disgustingly heteronormative um, in the kitchen, like drinking wine. And my friend whose birthday it was, her cousin was like, guess what? I just started selling sex toys and the catalogs came out. And like that one moment really did change everything. And I was just like, yeah, sure, I'll do this. Why not? And then someone was like, oh, do you do like coaching and one-on-one work? And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And just kind of kept saying yes as these opportunities arose, um, which I feel very blessed. And I had no clue what the f*** I was doing, to be perfectly honest. And so what is the educational part of your chosen career, however? I mean, part of it is a calling. Yes. Part of it is, I think, your personality and, you know, the way people open up to you. But then there's that educational portion. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So what is what is that part? In terms of my education? Yeah, in terms of your education. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so in those in those very early years, I basically just became obsessed with learning everything I could about sex and sexuality and relationships and was just a really voracious reader of both, you know, the literature that was available when you go into a bookstore and you get to that section, as well as um, scientific articles and, and whatnot, right? So my background educationally at that point was in neuroscience, so I knew how to, I knew how to read a good and assess a, a scientific article. Um, and then 
through kind of continued that self-education for a while, also started seeking out other opportunities, and then obviously the, the Masters of Public Health with that focus as well. And since then, just lots of professional development opportunities, interning with the amazing Center for Sexual Pleasure and Health up in uh, Providence, Providence or Pawtucket, Rhode Island. They just moved. I think they moved to Providence. <laughs> um, getting to train and teach under just absolutely amazing sex educators, ones at Planned Parenthood, ones at the Institute for Sexuality, Education, and Enlightenment, you know, just so many professional opportunities. And that's something I continue to do ongoing because there's always room to grow. Absolutely. And we met because you also have the IBDs. I do have the so IBDs. So you have the IBDs. Have just one of them. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then actually, I didn't know until just recently that you also have um, a form of arthritis that mm-hmm. goes along with IBD. Yep. So could you take a couple of minutes and mm-hmm. take me through that journey, which I've read about on your website, but um, <laughs> can you just, uh, get, you can. Can you just uh, give me the high points? Yeah. I mean, I'm real shy in case that uh, hasn't <laughs> come out here. Um yeah, so my journey today, that the day that we're recording, today is actually my three-year anniversary of my Crohn's diagnosis. Yep, didn't even know that when we scheduled it. Um, so have, having some feelings, but it um, the Crohn's diagnosis came as a surprise, whereas the, the ankylosing spondylitis, which is the form of arthritis I have, really wasn't, it was more like, a, oh, thank God I have a name for this thing now and what's wrong with me, and we, we could actually address why my body keeps breaking down and not healing, even though I'm young and active and everyone thought I was healthy. So the Crohn's was definitely a like slow trickle that I do think probably started back in college for me, and I don't actually, I don't feel like my story is one where I went undiagnosed because doctors missed it. I think that the infection I got in college just changed my normal, so it never in a way that I was just like, oh, well, this is fine. It's it's still within the bounds of what is considered healthy. It's just on that very upper level until it wasn't anymore. And until it was hard to eat, the symptoms were just too much to handle. Um, and, you know, this doctor finally said, I, I really think you need to see a GI and, and go for further testing. So that led to the Crohn's diagnosis. It was completely devastating I'll be perfectly honest I didn't know a ton about it at the time um now I do obviously (laughs) you learn real fast um and it's still you know I think particularly because today is the anniversary I'm particularly reflective particularly nostalgic I really do feel like my life can kind of be cut into like BCAC before Crohn's and after and sometimes I think back to the things I did before Crohn's, which include grad school, uh, <laughs> that job working with cancer patients, college, etc., and it doesn't even almost feel like my life sometimes. Um, and yeah, and then the the arthritis is your story of it was ignored and went undiagnosed for years, despite the fact that I kept getting injured year in and year out. And it took a physical therapist literally saying to me, "Go to your primary care provider and say these exact words." that'll get you the rheumatologist, you know, referral. And then once I got that, go to your rheumatologist and say these exact words because I had been working with him for over a year and it just wasn't getting better. And I would leave his office and my body would just right back to how it was when I went in. Not because he wasn't skilled, because I had underlying inflammation that was just not letting my body heal the way it needed to. 
Oh my gosh. You know, what a story. I, I completely agree with you. There's always the, the before IBD and the after IBD. And whenever, my <laughs> yeah, whenever we talk with patients um, who have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, intimacy is a big issue that doesn't mm-hmm. get addressed a lot. Nope. And what do you feel are some of the, the bigger issues that, mm-hmm. or the bigger barriers that people with IBD come up against? Yeah. And you said before, like, oh, this sounds like it was a calling for your work. And it's really wild when you can take the long view and you're in a, a mental health and emotional health space where you can look back and be like, whoa, things work out real weird. And I think back to being 22 and this little shithead research assistant working with cancer patients, the doctors yelling at me for asking their patients about sex, not all of them, but many of them, reaming me, like, what? how dare you? And being like, oh, this is something that doesn't get talked about. I'm going to talk about it. Did my master's thesis on sex in cancer patients. Spent all of grad school being told that's not a public health issue. Why does that matter? I don't understand. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm like, you all can't see the, the face happening here, but shock. Uh, it's probably the same one you're making. And yeah, I spent the entirety of my grad school defending why this was a valid public health issue. And thankfully found one or you know a few mentors within Hopkins who were doing somewhat similar enough work that they were like, we support you, but that was it. And so it's almost, it was just like such a natural progression to be like, oh, cool. I talk about sex. I'm going to talk about poop. Now I'm going to talk about sex when you poop and you don't want to. (laughs) We're not talking when you want to. And, you know, with the, the IBDs, there is... There, oh my God, there's so many things. <laughs> where, do you, where do you even begin? There are the very you know, practical, if you will, symptomatic related concerns of what happens if I poop during sex, what happens if my ostomy leaks, you know, all of those very, very practical things. There is, I've heard from several people about who really were avid enjoyers of anal sex and that being taken away from them, which leads to then the emotional fallout of your body is doing things differently. And, you know, most of what impacts sex has nothing to do with the act of sex itself. It has to do with the nature of the relationship, the one you have with yourself and whoever you're having sex with, it has to do with the context, the is it erotic, how stressed are you, how's your body image, how's your health? Like health is a big one. And when you are having those body image issues, which come so hand in hand with the Crohn's and the colitis and the IBD, oh, sorry, the IBDs, um, you know, it, of course, body image stuff is going to come up. It, and often it manifests as not wanting to be intimate. Stress levels are heightened. Just the sheer the sheer stress of managing a chronic illness, whatever it is, right, any of them, and then also managing a chronic illness that is so stigmatized and taboo because, oh, poop, 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 just could keep saying it, right? It's like, it's layers upon layers of stigma and shame and just embarrassment and it people shut down with any chronic illness and with this one especially. So very broadly, obviously this is what you do for a living and yes. it's it's it, it's a personal one-on-one yes. situation. So personal. But <laughs> for for women with IBD mm-hmm. who are just beginning to think that they need to start unraveling this. Mm. Where can they start? <sighs> uh, go to my website. <laughs> <laughs> It's too too easy. (laughs) Where to start? Start with the self. Start with 
reconnecting to things that bring you pleasure, whether that is sexual pleasure or otherwise. Because again, we spend so much of our time as patients managing our illness, illness, managing our healthcare providers, just managing things that we get really cut off from pleasure. There is a reason why I center my work around this concept of freedom and pleasure instead of have better sex, because you can't have better sex without reconnecting to pleasure. And I actually, I was at yoga before we filmed this and I loved what my teacher said today. It, she always says the perfect thing. And I was like, I'm going to mention that on the podcast. <laughs> and she was talking about every now and then those of us with chronic stuff, and she has it too. It's why I love practicing with her. You just got to like think of it as a project and you just got to set it aside for five minutes, 10 minutes. And just set it aside. And of course, today it was like for the nature duration of this class. And so start reconnecting in the teeniest little sips and gulps that you can take to things that bring you pleasure. And then slowly let that expand into different parts of your life, into sex, into the bedroom. But start with the pleasure first and foremost. And then I think from there, like check in on how if you're in a relationship how that partnership is because chronic illness diagnoses change relationships and in the end we see this in the research i see this personally i see this with my counseling clients most of the time it's for the better but when you're in it it's fucking sucks <laughs> there is so much miscommunication and pain and misunderstanding so how's the relationship and what support do you need what conversations i call them big scary talks do you need to have do you need to bring someone like me, like a sex therapist in as a support just to hold space? Because really at the end of the day, that's what a good therapist, educator, counselor does is hold space for you to, it creates a safe container to explore what are really scary issues and in, in a way that's safe and, and you feel like you can get resolution and not just be at loggerheads. Is that the phrase, loggerheads? I think so. I think so. Did I use that right? It, yes. it rings a little bit of a bell. <laughs> But it's not a phrase that I would use. So. Oh, it just came out. Uh, yeah. I was preaching. It just good. happened. You were, you know, that was so good. That was so good, Kate. Thank you. And then that leads right into one of your other hashtags, practical pleasure. Mm, yes. That really spoke to me and mirroring that to chronic illness. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about that hashtag and what that means to you? Yeah. So this concept came before my illnesses did. And it came from a frustration with my industry and no one in particular, just for everyone listening, I'm not, this is not a call out of any kind, but of this narrative that in order to have good sustained change, you need to spend hours a week on things or a day on things. And in order, and if you really cared about your sex life and relationship, you would prioritize it in a way that meant you were spending all your time on it. And like, that I'm not sorry like we all are living such beautifully full lives right now we have our work we have you know whatever work and I use work very broadly um whether it's paid work I don't care just we have our passions our hobbies our relationships no one has time to spend an hour a day masturbating or giving hand like you just don't so out of that frustration came this idea of practical pleasure of just like how again how can we in sips and gulps reconnect and rebuild pleasure in our lives, pleasure in our relationships, intimacy in our relationships. And then when you add the layer of, of illness onto it and of IBD onto it, it's like our energy is all so limited. 
And there's a lot of things that we can't do. Like sometimes I read these blogs and books and I'm like, who the f*** can like crawl around and pretend you're animals on a bed? Like, I mean, it sounds fun. Don't get me wrong. But like my body hasn't been able to do that in a long ass time. (laughs) Like there are too many concerns. And so like what are little ways, you know, for me distilling that down, what's the thing you're working on there? With that, it's getting out of your comfort zone. It's having fun. It's being playful. You don't need to hurt yourself to do that. You can do that in other ways. You can, you know, I always say like try new things together, whether that's a new bottle of wine, it could be real small like that, or it could be you you take a day trip somewhere you've never been, right? It doesn't always have to be these huge things because at the end of the day, what we do every day is what actually leads to sustained change. You will know this, that... The rate of sexual dysfunction, and I don't like that term. Mm. You, you know, you can tell me how you feel about it. No, it's, yeah, we will. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, but the rate of sexual dysfunction in people with IBD is high. Mm-hmm. It's consistently always um, tracking that way. So I feel as though a lot of people with IBD or other chronic illnesses could really benefit from your services. Thank you. So, and, but... You know, it's got to be right up there with like seeing a therapist for the first time mm-hmm. or seeing a gastro for the first mm-hmm. time. So can you take some of the mystery mm-hmm. out of what this process is like and when you meet a client and yeah. what the steps might be yeah. there? First of all, I f-ing love this question so much. Thank you for asking it. Second of all, I want to just pop over to the dysfunction m- moment. Uh, <laughs> um, and yeah. God, we just need to label everything, don't we? Um, Not you and me, we, like, royal society, we... Yeah, sexual dysfunction is a thing. I'm not going to say that. But I, when I talk about sex, I always say, like, there's not really a normal. There's just more and less common. Like, there's such a broad spectrum of what's quote-unquote normal. And it'd be real nice if we stopped classifying things that are perfectly normal but just not really common or we don't know that they're common. I'm thinking particularly of the trajectory of like understanding um, like being trans. So like, used to be problematic. We just thought no one did it and it was rare. And now it's like, no, it's actually pretty common and totally normal. It's always been, it's just been the case. So that is my little diatribe on dysfunction. (laughs) In terms of kind of the process people go through with me and I'll I'll speak directly to counseling, Mm -hmm. I assume, yeah. And so, in terms of that, the first step is um, to, there's links everywhere, I post them all the time, is to schedule an initial call with me. And that initial call is really just a chance to get to know each other. It's free, it's low pressure, I ask you like a shit ton of questions, and the goal is for both of us to get a sense of who the other person is, and for me, is this something, it can't do can I actually help them? Is what they're seeking help with within my scope of practice? I feel very, I'm very grateful that within sex ed and particularly from the people I've trained with, knowing your limits and boundaries is super important, which makes sense since we're all about consent. Um, And so I will never push someone to work with me unless it is A, like a full body hell yes from them, and B, it's something that's within my scope. And my scope is not, a, you know, no one's scope is a, is a fixed thing. It's always changing and shifting. But I am very happy to refer out 
whenever I need to because I can't do everything. No person can. And so, yeah, so that's kind of step one. And then if at the end we're both like, you know, this feels like a really good fit, it's exactly the types of things I work with. So most common ones being mismatched desire or low desire, struggles experiencing orgasm, struggles communicating, not knowing what they want, never mind how the hell to ask for it. From there, we figure out like a kind of a game plan of what's going to be a best fit in terms of length of time to work together. And then we start with our sessions. And that first session is another hour of lots of questions <laughs> and lots of digging in. Usually in that initial call, that free one, I am take, I'm taking tons of notes and things are getting highlighted and commented and it just looks like a like total war zone in a Google Doc. <laughs> Thank God no one sees that one but me. Um, and I'm following up on those things in that first client call. Um, at the end of that, you're given, you know, at the end of that, in every subsequent call, you get a spark plan. And that's your own customized, essentially, sex plan. And it's the exact things to do. And quite frankly, usually, it's not until about halfway through or later that you're actually getting stuff to do with sex on that. So my favorite example um, is one of my, my favorite clients ever, and her first assignment was to take a five-minute walk at lunch every single day. And the shift that that made, talking about practical pleasure, between we met the first week and then I see, you know, we, we have calls every other week, and so two weeks later, it was like a different person from a five-minute walk at lunch, from the simple act of getting away from her desk going outside or on rainy days sitting in a window sitting by a window in the lobby and just looking outside and getting natural light I mean I was like who are you <laughs> it was amazing and so really making sure that you have practical things to try and then every subsequent call after that initial one is 30 minutes long and it's really about troubleshooting what were what did you do what worked how'd it go what didn't work where do we go from here what is it that you want to focus on and I provide, obviously, the, you know, the expert guidance and information and, and homework, if you will, or whatever word you want to use for it. And then you go and get to do it on your own or with your partner, depending on what it is, and have fun. And yeah, sometimes it is go and have this type of sex, which is also like, I'm like oh, I signed someone sex for homework today. <laughs> That's cool. Well, that doesn't sound scary. No. That sounds great. Yeah. Sounds and we like... open every call with like a little meditation. It just like gets centered and grounded. And people always really remark on how how good that feels. They're like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. But I'm really grateful that like I can just leave the day behind and really focus on this for now. Well, I'm glad we talked about that then. Then people thanks. people were coming into it and not understanding what it would yeah, be. Thanks. And um, that's it makes perfect sense that you'd start off with a little yeah, a little just, meditation and grounded and mm -hmm. get everybody on the same plane. And the conversation just flows more easily. And it, it does. It does. So much better. So I'm going to give you some time here, Kate. Okay. I'm going to ask you. You're going to have to pick one. I'm sure there's okay. many, many, many. But I want you to pick one misconception oh. about sex and dispel it for us right here right now oh my god only haven't i done this already <laughs> oh i'm sure you've done it many many times with clients <laughs> and with all of the other uh, work the media work that you do and everything but mm -hmm. uh, what's what's your favorite one yeah. to let go yeah my favorite and one of the most common ones i hear from my clients is that desire is spontaneous and it just happens like that. And this is a story that we have been fed from every 
fucking angle. I'm a huge romance reader, and I call my romance author friends out on this all the time. Um, Rom-coms, porn, like, you name it. Anything that touches on sex supports this myth. And it's exactly that. It's a myth. And what we know is that women especially typically have desire that's more responsive. So what this means is that they won't feel in the mood to have sex until sexy things start to happen. Now, what exactly those sexy things are varies person to person. How much of those sexy things they need before they feel the desire also varies person to person. Um, And often what I'll hear from my clients is something along the lines of, you know, the sex is really great when we have it. But I, I never want to want it, and I just want to want it. And they think something's wrong with them, and, and it's not. It's perfectly normal. So for everyone listening, if that sounds like you in any way, shape, or form, it is not only normal, but it's also the primary form of desire that women experience. Some men do, too, as well. Um, but a lot of it, again, just ties into context in our brains needing to shift from prioritizing work and family and home and blah, 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 to, oh, hey, sex is happening now. Cool. Oh, these sexy things. Oh, yeah, I like these. Oh, I kind of want more of them. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do this. Let's keep going. Thank you for that. I love that answer. Thanks. It's really good. I, I also feel like if you want to have more sex, you need to have more sex. Like, would you say that, that that's true mm, or no? No. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back on oh, that. Really good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Me- you know, I think it's really, I'm thinking of like all my clients right now who've come to me with this and it's on one hand, yes. And on the other hand, it's just never that simple. It's, there's usually what often happens when someone has what they describe as low desire or they, they're never in the mood to want it is you end up with this chasing dynamic in the relationship. And so the person who has responsive and or low, usually I'm just going to drop this in here, low desire, most, I say most often we'll just say is just responsive desire and it's normal and you just need to address it differently. There's nothing wrong with you. So usually what happens is a person with responsive desire starts to freak out, not even consciously, just on a subconscious level, the second their partner even hints at wanting to, to get it on. And then the partner who has the more spontaneous or higher desire starts to feel rejected. And so both partners feel like shit they blame the other person and they blame their, themselves. And it just, they get locked in this dynamic. And so it's not as simple as just have sex because there's so much, their bodies are just like, nope, this can't happen right now. And they find a way to avoid it just like, you know, a predator and prey. And, and it's not abuse, I want to be really clear, right? It's not anyone forcing anyone to do anything. It's just this kind of subtle but very powerful dynamic that happens all the damn time. It's happened in my relationship. At the peak of my Crohn stuff, it happened. And then I was like, oh, cool. I see what's happening. I think that's a big part of it is even just recognizing that mm-hmm. that's happening. And once you recognize it, then you can do something about yeah, it. You can fix it. Yeah. So then they will call you. Yeah. So and I say a lot of my work is just being like, let's name what's happening. Like with, the, with my counseling clients, it's like, let's figure out what's happening because once we do, then we can address it. Then we could look at it as a roadblock and not an I'm broken and something's wrong with me. Because most of the time, there's nothing wrong with you. And I feel like that might be a lot of what you end up doing is just telling people that they're that they're okay, mm-hmm. right? That they're not mm-hmm. broken. There's One of my wrong clients right now, I'm pretty sure they're paying me just to be their personal cheerleader. 
And I'm totally cool with that because I get on and I'm like, you've done everything, but that's part of it, right? Self-worth, self-esteem, those are all, they all play in. And so our sessions look a lot like this person telling me all the really kick-ass, amazing stuff that they've done and me being like, great, how do you feel about that? Great, that's really exciting, don't you think? And helping them to discover, to connect with that celebration and natural self-worth that we all have because we're all born worthy within themselves so that at the end of our work together they won't need me to be providing that external affirmation and, and validation and we're, we can shift actually from validation to affirmation kate everyone is going to want to call you now yeah. um so please don't go call through. me no, 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 I, let me rephrase that no i know you're good Kate, everyone is going to want to email you now. Um, <laughs> where so. can people find you? What's your website? What's your social media? Mm-hmm. So that everybody, and uh, you and I talked about this previously, uh, about this idea that um, I lovingly follow you <laughs> so that I know what's up with you all the time. But where can everyone else lovingly yeah. follow you? Yeah, so perks of spelling Kate a little differently. So I spell it K-A-I-T instead of the usual way is that everything is the same exact name, which doesn't happen often anymore. So you can find me, everything is Passion by Kate. So whether that's passionbykate.com or at passionbykate on uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, or email-wise passionbykate at Gmail. So it's real, real simple, I made it for you. Or my mama. I actually really just thank my mama. That's, you know, that's not easy to make it real simple. I know it that it's isn't. not. Because it's unreal. Like, thank God. Yeah. To be consistent across it, mm-hmm. about, across Super everything consistent. is really challenging. Real easy for y'all. So thank you for the work that you do. Thank and you. And thank you for sitting with me. Oh and gosh, this um, is so fun. Uh, yeah. This is the best. This is the most. Let's do it this again is, soon. You know, I think this is my very first episode of About IBD After Dark. So thank you for that. Yeah. All right. Super listener. Thank you to Kate Scalisi for taking the time to record with me and for the work that she does in helping people to rediscover their joy in connecting with themselves and with their partner. Kate is available for one-on-one counseling and she conducts workshops for women in New York City where she's based. You can learn more about her and get in touch at her website, passionbykate.com. I subscribe to her newsletter, which is fantastic. Check the show notes for all of Kate's social media information so that you can follow Passion by Kate on her blog, as well as on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to find me on social media and let me know how you're enjoying the show or if you have a topic you'd like to hear featured. You can find me all over the interwebs as About IBD, on the Facebook, the Twitter, and the Instagram, as well as aboutibd.com. You can also head to verywell.com for disease information about IBD, that I've written, which has been medically reviewed by a practicing gastroenterologist. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. Coming up on the next episode of About IBD, the stress that was involved in worrying about when I was gonna get the medication, how it was gonna be paid, and who it was gonna be paid to, it took a toll on my health.